step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everyone, Eric Rivenis here. My apologies, first off, for the lack of episodes here in the last few months and the last few weeks especially. I am currently working on a true crime story set in 1920s St. Paul right now, and it will be a multi-episode limited podcast series when it's finished. But I'm a one-man show, at least for now, and the work really eats up my spare time. So I hope you understand, but please know it will be worth the wait when it is eventually released. Okay. On to the show. I'm speaking today with journalist William Swanson, author of three Minnesota true crime history books, including Dial M, The Murder of Carol Thompson, featured this week on my regular Most Notorious podcast. He's here at Minnesota's Most Notorious to tell us about his book, Stolen from the Garden, The Kidnapping of Virginia Piper. Thanks so much again, Bill, for doing this with me. My pleasure, Eric. So let me start by asking you this. Where were you in your life when all of this happened? <laughs> well, I was, I was a, a young uh, reporter for the United Press International in Minneapolis during the summer of, of 1972. And I, uh, when all hell broke loose, when Virginia Piper was kidnapped out of her backyard on July 27th, uh, I was I was working at the bureau. Uh, I was not part of the team that that uh, uh, followed the case directly, that reported the case. But I was I was part of the the bureau at the time, so I got a ringside seat to the uh, to the initial investigation. Anyway, just out of curiosity, um, how were assignments like this doled out? Would a case like this ha- have gone to a senior reporter? <laughs> Well, as, as it happened, our, our, we, this was a small bureau, maybe you know fewer than a, a, a dozen people at the time uh, in Minneapolis. And the bureau manager and a couple of the more senior guys, yeah, they did get the bulk of the reporting and uh, and therefore the bylines, et cetera, for whatever that's worth. Um, 
but that's just the way it worked. There was also, you know, because it's it's a small organization in Minneapolis at the time, uh, it was whoever was available uh, too, and who wasn't working on on other pressing uh, assignments. So tell us about the Piper family in the summer of 1972. Who were they? Where did they live? Well, the Pipers were a very prominent family. Harry Piper Jr., uh, the head of the family, uh, was the chairman and CEO of Piper Jaffrey and Hopwood, as it was called at that time. That was a very, uh, a very significant local, uh, locally based uh, stock brokerage. And Harry Piper Jr. was very well placed within the financial community uh, here in the Twin Cities, but also out east too. He was uh, he was active uh, with the New York Stock Exchange and uh, uh, you know a, a really significant player as it turned out. His wife uh, Virginia was uh, a beautiful 49 year old, well educated, very popular uh, woman. Uh, Socialite, we called these people in those days. Uh, they were active in, in philanthropy and various civic and and, uh, and other organizations. Um, they had three sons, 27 to 18 at the time, if memory serves. Uh, the oldest, uh, Harry uh, uh, the Third, was a was a lawyer. He was a, a newly minted lawyer who eventually uh, worked for the Justice Department in Washington. Uh, the second son, Addison, better known as Tad, uh, was uh, was a Piper Jaffrey employee and uh, eventually succeeded his father in running the company. Uh, and the third son was a college student at the time, uh, uh, David, uh, who has since um, become a, a lawyer as well and and. Uh, and is currently a Minnesota State District Judge. At the time, they were very well known on the western edge of, or on the yeah, western edge of the Twin Cities, uh, one of the more affluent areas of the Twin Cities. They had a beautiful home on Spring Hill Road. Uh, they were not the wealthiest uh, or the most uh, the the most prominent of many wealthy, prominent families at the time. There were the Daytons and the Pillsburys and a lot of names that you would, you would recognize. But they really, uh, they, they were, they were very well placed, part of the Woodhill Country Club crowd and very highly respected uh, in their community. As you research this book, you obviously talked to members of the Piper family. How, how was that interaction? Were they pretty candid with you? Were they okay with you writing a book about their mother? Well, as as all of these as all of these projects develop, there's a certain amount of of persuasion, uh, asking and waiting, and hoping uh, involved with your potential sources. In this case, I had called Harry uh, the third, and I'll just call him Harry from now on because his dad. Harry Jr., the, the the head of the family, uh, was widely known as Bobby. It was Bobby and Ginny. Those were the two parents, as they were known virtually everywhere. So I'll refer to the the older man as Bobby and and uh, Harry as the uh, as the as the son, as the oldest son. Anyway, I had contacted Harry, who was then living in Oregon, uh, because I knew that he was working on a book about the case. 
this was just uh, this was a few years ago. This is about 2011, 2012. And uh, I thought I would write a magazine article, just kind of updating the case. It was approaching the 40th anniversary of the kidnapping, and uh, I thought it would be a, a you know, it, it, because it was an unresolved case. It is an unresolved case. I thought it would be an interesting magazine story. Turns out that uh, that Harry uh, was just giving up on a 10-year-long project, a book project. He wanted to write his own book about the uh, about the Piper case. He wanted to celebrate the courage and the resourcefulness of his parents and he wanted to uh if he could solve the case that as I say was 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 and is unresolved. He dealt with his former employer the the US Department of Justice uh went to court and finally managed to wrestle about 80,000 pages of FBI investigative documents uh, out of the Department of Justice and uh, was was prepared to write this book. He interviewed a lot of the people who had been involved in the case and um, uh, had a basement full of papers and interviews, tapes, etc. But he had he had he had reached the end of his rope. Uh, as he told me, he said, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a writer. I just don't know how to put this together. He also felt bad because uh, he had not been able to, uh, in his mind, uh, get any closer to a resolution of the case than when he started uh, 10 years earlier. So he was uh, he was amenable to talking to me, more important, or just as important, I should say. He was uh, amenable, if his brothers uh, uh, agreed, to turning over all the materials that he had gotten to me. Uh, with no strings attached. I would write the book. It would be uh, my book and my book only. Uh, I would certainly fact check with them as I fact check with all my sources. Uh, but it would be, it would be my book and they just wanted me to tell them that it was going to be accurate and comprehensive, which uh, I believe it, it turned out to be. Anyway, that's how I started. And, uh, uh, Harry, uh, spread the word among, uh, his relatives and some of his, uh, some of his friends. And, uh, most of the people were, that I contacted after that were amenable to talking to me. Several of them at great length and, and several times. That must have been fun going through 80,000 pages. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't, I didn't go through 80,000 pages. I'm not sure Harry did either. The pages that that Harry got from the uh, DOJ uh, were they were so heavily redacted. There wasn't as much to read as you would think there was. There was a lot of material that we could read, but uh, there was the, the Justice Department had, out of spite or or whatever, protecting sources, whatever uh, uh, argument they would they would offer. There was a lot of material in those documents that they did not. Uh, did not want people to read. What was interesting, though, especially uh, among other things, there was a lot of stuff. This was an investigation uh, that involved literally hundreds of FBI agents around the country uh, who talked to uh, literally a thousand plus possible suspects, what we would call today persons of interest. Uh, virtually anybody who had any contact with the Pipers, uh, family members, uh, classmates of the kids, 
people who had done work around the house, bartenders they may have hired for for parties, and and certainly the people downtown who worked at Piper and Jaffrey and Hopwood, and worked in the building, the Baker Building, where where the the firm was located. All of these people were contacted uh, and interviewed by FBI agents, as well as anybody with any sort of significant uh, criminal record, uh, especially anything that involved uh, extortion or kidnapping or anything of that sort. Those people were uh, were tracked down and grilled, and in many cases, given lie detector tests and so forth. Even the Pipers, even Bobby and Jenny Piper, uh, were were uh, asked and and uh, and agreed to uh, submit to lie detector tests. Interesting. So, could you walk us through the kidnapping itself? What Virginia Piper was doing that day? Why she was at home? How the kidnapping went down? Well, this is 1972, so uh, uh, most women were at home in those days. The, the husband was was at work uh, at the office or wherever, and, and the woman was at home. In in Jenny's case, she had uh, she had had her hair done that morning, and she had come home, and they had a beautiful garden out back, which was kind of her pride and joy. And she was out back uh, shortly after lunchtime, uh, tending to her flowers. And she had an appointment uh, back in Minneapolis at three o'clock, uh, where she was involved with a hospital board. And uh, uh, but she was just kind of killing time with her flowers uh, when when these these two masked men walked in waving guns, and there were a couple of cleaning women there uh, who were always there on Thursday. Uh, they tied them up, and Virginia Piper came in and and. Uh, face these two men with guns and one of them said where's your old man she said well he he's at work he's at work downtown and uh, they uh, they said okay you're coming with us but first they asked if there was a safe in the house and uh, she said no which was true and they put handcuffs on her put a pillowcase over her head uh, and swept her out the front door put her in the back seat of a car and drove off before leaving, they had left an envelope addressed simply to family uh, on, on a desk or a, a table in the, in the living room. And in that envelope was a very carefully written, carefully typed ransom demand for $1 million in cash. The cleaning women were able to get free of their bonds and called Harry downtown at the office, or Bobby downtown at the office. Bobby immediately called the FBI and the Hennepin County Sheriff's Office, and suddenly this was a huge police case. Virginia Piper, meantime, was in the back seat of this car with these two men. They were speeding northward toward Duluth up in the Arrowhead, and a couple of hours later, they stopped at the Jay Cook State Park, a heavily forested area just south of Duluth. And they took her up into the woods, still blindfolded, and they chained her to a tree. By this time, it's raining, and it's pretty cool for July up there around Duluth. And that's where she was. Uh, Bobby Piper, meantime, was, uh, was uh, assembling his family and talking to police. Uh, there was nothing really for the police to look at at the house. 
the men had been wearing gloves, and uh, so there, there was no fingerprints. There were no muddy footprints, the, no weapon, nothing of any uh, of, of any sort that might be helpful to the to the police. And the cleaning ladies were frightened. Nothing like this had ever happened in their experience. Uh, they had seen a car, but they really couldn't say anything about it. They couldn't. They said it was green, and that was about the only information they could provide. So the authorities had nothing, but the FBI are on the case. They're on it immediately, even though there's no indication at this point that it's a federal crime. Just as a side, uh, the FBI had kind of assumed the position uh, over the past several decades of being the national authority on kidnapping. Most kidnappings, in their experience, had involved the perpetrators and their victims crossing a state line, which made it a federal offense. Uh, but they they were called immediately, and they immediately got involved. The local police, given the prominence of the victims and the uh, and the amount of money, one million dollars that was being demanded, I have to think were only too happy to let the FBI take over the case, whether it was in fact a federal offense or not. That later became a very important question uh, when it came to uh, to prosecuting uh, the eventual suspects. This was on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, on Friday, Bobby got a call at home. It was Jenny's recorded voice giving him instructions as to what to do with the million dollars. He had, with the help of his banker friends, put together a million dollars $50,020 bills in a duffel bag, a specially made duffel bag that weighed 110 pounds. He was told to put that money in in the trunk of his car, a family car, and deliver it according to very specific instructions. Long story short, he did that on Friday night when 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 they got another phone call telling him to get going. Uh, he ended up in a bar just on the edge of Saint, uh, on the edge of downtown Minneapolis, and um, when he was in the bar, following these instructions, the money was pretty obviously transferred from his car or the car he was driving at the time to the kidnapper's car. And uh, the next morning, uh, a clergyman in Minneapolis got a got a call from an unidentified source giving him instructions as to Jenny's whereabouts. And he was supposed to pass those instructions on to the FBI, which he did. The FBI, three hours later, flew up, <laughs> ended up in, in Jay Cook State Park as directed, and there was Jenny chained to the tree, disheveled and, uh, and dirty and wet because it had been raining, and uh, very, very happy to see the FBI. She was hungry. She was dying for a cigarette, as uh, as some of our smokers uh, can can appreciate. And uh, within a few more hours, she was back at home. And amazingly, she was uh, unhurt. She had some abrasions on her wrists where uh, where the, the the kidnappers had handcuffed her. But she had not been pushed around. She had not been sexually assaulted or assaulted in any way uh, other than um, being thrown in the back seat of a car and uh, held against her will for two days. But she was she was uh, physically fine. Uh, part of my book 
describes the aftermath and 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 the trauma that uh, that lasted uh, that that stayed with the Pipers the rest of their lives. Virginia would die uh, of cancer in 1988, and Bobby uh, would die also of cancer uh, two years later. And they dealt with that kidnapping in one way or another for the rest of their lives. As far as the investigation was concerned, as I said, the FBI interviewed all these people over five years. Five years was the uh, amount of time the federal statute of limitations allowed for kidnapping. And they had arrested nobody in that time, even though they had they had talked to and interviewed and interrogated uh, uh, literally 1,000-plus persons. But they finally, 16 days before the expiration of the federal statute of limitations, they arrested two middle-aged men, Ken Callahan and Donald Larson, and charged them with the kidnapping of a Virginia Piper. Um, both of these guys were small-time criminals. They had been in and out of jail and prison since they were literally in high school. They were now middle-aged. Uh, neither one of them, of course, admitted to anything. They weren't involved. They knew nothing about it and other than what they had read in the paper. And um, But nonetheless, that they were the FBI suspects. They were charged in federal court uh, with kidnapping, and the first trial took place in the fall of 1977. It was a very, very sketchy evidence, and there were no fingerprints in the house. And uh, they never did, uh, they never did get, well, they did get their hands on the car, the kidnapped car, but there were no fingerprints in the car either of any significance. There was a scrap of paper, uh, just a fragment of a shopping bag that had a, that had a thumbprint on it. And that thumbprint uh, had been examined by the FBI's crack forensic team in Washington uh, three times uh, without, uh, without any conclusions. And then uh, shortly before the expiration of the statute of limitations, uh, they looked at it again and decided that, whoa, it belonged to Don Larson. So that was one piece. There was also a single strand of hair that was found in the car. That, uh, that the FBI said belonged to Ken Callahan, who wore his hair kind of long. Uh, and that was basically the amount of evidence they had. Some of the money had been, some of the $20 bills, the so-called Piper 20s, had been, had been circulated uh, in southern Minnesota within a few months of the kidnapping. So there were, there were some men that had been seen passing and, and the, they would go into a bank and want change for a, you know, for a $20 bill or for $300 worth of $20 bills. And that was the way the, the kidnappers were, were uh, laundering their money. And so a bank teller would, would, would see one of these guys and, and uh, they put together, a, a, you know, a police sketch of of these of these persons, kind of you know middle aged guys, white guys, uh, one of them wearing glasses. The problem is, is that the sketches looked like I say in my book, it looks like you know everybody's ninth grade physical education teacher. There was there was nothing distinctive about these about these sketches. But anyway, 
they were they were they were used as potential pieces of evidence when the trial began. Before we get to the trial, I want to ask you about the transfer of the money. Yes. What was the, the family's position in all of this? I mean, I know that in kidnapping, sometimes the families want zero interference. Yeah. They don't want law enforcement to jeopardize the life of their loved one. Did yes. the family, um, did the FBI believe that they could catch the kidnappers at the moment of the exchange? Yes. The FBI, uh, they were prepared to set up a basically a trap for the kidnappers. They had this satchel that Bobby had had put together of a million dollars. They had the bundle of unmarked twenty dollar bills. The FBI wanted to put it in a in Bobby's car and drive, follow this route uh, with an FBI man driving. They didn't want Bobby in the car. They didn't want Bobby or any other family members anywhere near this transfer point. Bobby, however, wouldn't hear of it. Bobby was a very strong-willed, courageous. I mean, he he wasn't somebody who could be talked out of something very easily. So as it turned out, that Friday night, he did drive his own car with the money in in the trunk of the car. And following this uh, this uh, this bizarre uh, route into into Minneapolis from suburban Wyzetta, where they were where they were located, and uh, unbeknownst to Bobby, he would have not have liked this, but uh, they they didn't tell him this. The FBI posted about three dozen cars, unmarked cars, between the Piper's home and. Uh, in, in Minneapolis, thinking that they would pick up Bobby driving along and maybe pick up the transfer itself. Well, that didn't happen. They didn't see Bobby, or if they saw Bobby, they didn't realize it was Bobby. I mean, it, this was not one of the FBI's greatest moments, I, I think we can say in retrospect, as desperate as they were. Bobby got all the way down to Minneapolis. He, he ended up in his bar called the Sportsman's Retreat, which is no longer there. It's now under freeway, freeway I-94. And uh, uh, he went into this bar as instructed. He put the trunk key of the car he was driving above the bathroom door as instructed, and then waited to use the payphone as instructed. And while he was waiting, apparently, somebody had removed the key from the men's room uh, and gone outside and transferred the money from from uh, the car Bobby was driving uh, to uh, to their own and disappeared that was the basis of the transfer there was no there was no no authorities no officials no police or anybody else who witnessed the actual actual transfer uh, despite all their uh, all their best intentions there was no question about delivering the money either uh, Bobby did not feel this was a bluff. The uh, the ransom note uh, was really an extraordinary document. I wish I could talk more about that because it is very, very specific. There was no wiggle room. And uh, Bobby could see uh, that, uh, that these guys were serious, that they weren't bluffing. And he was absolutely convinced that if he didn't follow these instructions to the letter, 
uh, his wife's life would be in, in jeopardy. So he did. Hmm. So Virginia's time as a captive, how long was she tied to that tree, number one? And number two, what was her interaction with her kidnappers? Well, Eric, that's one of the many really, really interesting pieces of this very interesting case. Uh, As I said earlier, uh, she was a very um, uh, well-positioned woman, self-confident, well-spoken, good on her feet. She was more comfortable with a martini in one hand and a cigarette in the other with a beautiful dress on in, in, in a country club. But there she was uh, in, the, in the rain and the cold uh, in a forest. She had one one of the kidnappers with her, and he stood behind her or sat behind her as the evening developed. And she was no she no longer had the pillowcase over her head. She had a kind of a makeshift blindfold that quickly fell off. So this kidnapper said, "Now don't look at me. I'm going to be standing here. Do not look at me." So she followed the instructions. Once in a while, he gave her a cigarette, uh, uh, but not much to eat. And she stood there and and, bas- and sat there basically for almost two days. And uh, uh, as I said, she was unharmed physically. She was not slapped around or assaulted in any way. But she wasn't going anywhere, and she wasn't uh, about to look uh, turn her head. Uh, they did converse. She was comfortable. She could talk to anybody, people said. People who knew her uh, said she could talk to anybody. And In retrospect, she said uh, uh, she was glad that she had been kidnapped and not Bobby because Bobby (laughs) did not have the people skills that she had, and uh, Bobby might have ended up dead. Uh, She said that more than once. Anyway, when, when she's standing there, at some point, she gets very. She she just turns her head. She wasn't thinking at that point. She was probably so fatigued that uh, that nothing really made sense. She so she turned her head and she just happened to get a moment's glance at at her captor who was standing behind her. The captor had a nylon stocking over his head, but the nylon stocking had a run and a and a gap on the left side. And so for just a split second, she saw uh, a part of a a long, uh, curly sideburn. She saw part of his left eye, and significantly that left eye had a white line, a vertical line uh, on the eyeball. And as it turned out, that was another important part of the trial. Uh, it, it, it is a condition she didn't know at the time, but later learned called Arcus senilis. And Arcus senilis is a basically harmless condition that affects a, a few middle-aged people. And the important thing is it never goes away. So that's 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 what she could tell the FBI that this man had a white line on his eye. And as I say, that would be important later on. She was standing there, still attached to that tree when the FBI came crashing through the woods uh, the following morning. Actually, it was about noon. And um, uh, she she was, as I say, she was very happy to see that. 
And the, the, the kidnapper, of course, was nowhere to be found by that point. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. How did that identification help in the trial later? And was she able to remember the voices adequately enough to help the prosecution? Well, as it happened, she did not correctly recognize she said she did uh she was uh she was during the investigation uh after uh, after uh, these men had been arrested they were presented to her uh and uh, with, with she couldn't see their faces but she could uh, uh she could hear their voices and she misidentified the voices she didn't have the voices right now, this was five years later. This is five years after the fact. She could not identify either man uh, during the trial, uh, although she was pretty sure that Callahan was the man who had stayed with her in the woods. The, uh, the defendant's attorneys, very prominent and successful attorneys, Ron Meshbesher and Bruce Hardigan, they, of course, made... <laughs> made hay of the fact that uh, that uh, she misidentified the voices uh, and also paraded these two defendants in front of the jury, showing that neither one of them had this Arcus senilis. They had no line. They had no white line on their eyeball. And uh, as the uh, ophthalmologist testified, uh, that Arcus senilis, once you've got it, it doesn't go away. So if they didn't have it, that was a pretty damning blow to the the prosecution. That hair that was found, was it kept? Would they be able to do a DNA match on that now? Well, yet another important point here, Eric. When Harry Piper III, when Harry started his book, uh, this would have been in about 1998, uh, he started his research. The FBI, because this, the, there were two trials. The first trial, Callahan and Larson were convicted. They quickly appealed. The second trial, two years later, they were acquitted. And so the, the case was closed. The FBI insisted that they were guilty, that the second jury had, had got it wrong, but the case was closed. They threw out all their evidence. The evidence was just destroyed. And Harry was incredulous, of course. And when I talked to the, the federal prosecutor at the time, Thor Anderson, uh, he had no explanation for what happened to it. I don't know how long the FBI typically hangs on to hangs on to forensic evidence. I'm sure there's no real guideline to that. But they got rid of theirs not long after the second trial. So there was nothing that he was hoping, Harry was hoping to, to, uh, to to take the hair and, and, you know, do a DNA analysis, which wasn't available at the time of the kidnapping or time of the prosecution. It wasn't there. There was nothing to analyze. Right. This case is interesting. Um, the striking 
imagery of this socialite tied outside to a tree in the rain. Yeah. It's a strange place for kidnappers to hold their victims. They were so exposed. I mean, mm-hmm. a hiker could have stumbled on them. Yes. What do you make of their choice of holding her there? Oh, it, it is, Eric, it is so bizarre. It, it is just one of several uh, really inexplicable points. Of course, if you kidnap somebody and knowing that, you know, every cop, every citizen really in the five state area is going to be looking for this woman. Uh, you, you, you have her in a state park out in the open. It just made absolutely no sense. Uh, what if she started screaming, which she didn't, but she could have. Uh, what if, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's just madness. Who would do that? Another similar point is when the uh, when when one of the after they dropped her off at, at at Jay Cook, one of them stayed with her, but at least one, and maybe there were more than two men involved. Who knows? Somebody drove the car, the kidnapped car, this green car, turned out to be a stolen uh, Monte Carlo Chevrolet Monte Carlo. They drove it back to the Twin Cities. And it turned out to be the car that Bobby ended up driving with the ransom money in it. He drove his own car to this point uh, between Minneapolis and, and Orono, Wyzetta, uh, and was told to change cars. He changed cars, put the money in, in the second car, and drove off. Well, as it turned out, it was the Monte Carlo. And why the kidnappers wouldn't think, hey, maybe somebody saw us leave. <laughs> right. <laughs> <with this car. laughs> uh, you know, on Thursday afternoon. Uh, and now here they are using it, driving back, first of all, driving back to Minneapolis. Uh, and then secondly, you know, having Bobby use it as, as part of this, part of the money transfer. The FBI finally found the car. Bobby ended up driving it out to Bloomington per the kidnappers' instructions and leaving it in a parking lot of a, of a convenience store. The FBI staked it out. The next morning, they opened the trunk, fully expecting to find not the money at this point, uh, but the body of Jenny Piper. Well, the trunk was, was empty. She obviously wasn't in there. But again, it's just one of those truly bizarre parts of the story. Can I tell you another one? <laughs> yes, please. This, uh, nothing funny about this one. Uh, Don Larson, four years after the kidnapping, and, and a year before Don Larson, or two years before Don Larson was arrested for the, for the crime, he murdered five people. He had a ramshackle farm up near Willow River, which is kind of halfway between Minneapolis and Duluth. And uh, he had driven up there with with one of his, uh, with a five-year-old son, one Saturday afternoon, and a couple of guns. And he murdered his wife and her boyfriend, whom she apparently was going to move in with, and a couple of other kids who happened to be there at the time. He murdered five people and came back to Minneapolis, uh, got drunk and apparently uh, uh, attempted suicide 
but was found by the by the police and and taken into custody before he he could kill himself. But so he was in he was serving a life sentence in Stillwater Prison when he stood trial for for the uh, Piper kidnapping. So uh, you know that he certainly could have been involved in the kidnapping and then murdered these people later. Uh, as far as uh, if he had been convicted of of the uh, if he had been sentenced to prison for the kidnapping, uh, that just would have been a he, he would have served that at the same time. The FBI looked at their finances too, right, uh, to make sure that there weren't any unusually large purchases. Yes, and there was there was nothing incriminating about that. They also went up to Don Larson's farm uh, and uh, and and dug up the the uh, part of the farmyard, thinking that they might find money buried there. Uh, they didn't find anything. Ken Callahan uh, was a cabinet maker when he wasn't stealing things and counterfeiting money, and uh, had had built a cabin for himself in Cumberland, Wisconsin. And was living there with his wife, and and there was no sign afterward that he was enjoying a great amount of money. In fact, he had he had become kind of a local celebrity. He had befriended several police officers in Wisconsin, and uh, and actually spoke uh, to Rotary groups and so forth about his experiences of, of being a suspect in the in the most, uh, what's been called the most successful kidnapping of all time. At least at that time, it was called that. And for this to be the most successful kidnapping of all time, these guys didn't seem to be the most competent of characters. Correct. That's uh, the, these guys, as I say, they had a, they had, they both had long criminal histories, but it's pretty clear that they had not been involved in a in an adventure like this, and were you know, what what one lawyer called stumble bums, uh, a, a term that sounds appropriate. Uh, Ken Callahan, was a, he wasn't well-educated, but he was a pretty smart guy. Uh, Don Larson probably wasn't. And uh, the other thing that, that would cast, oh, there are many things that would cast out on, on these two guys. Don Larson was an inveterate talker. I mean, he just talked all the time. And in fact, they called him the Mouth. That was his nickname. And the idea that Don Larson would be in in prison now he's dead now. Both Callahan and Larson died during the during the last decade. And uh, the idea that he would be serving this life prison and uh, and would not be able to talk about this most celebrated of Minnesota crimes, or certainly one of them, uh, and brag about you know, this million-dollar ransom that he had extorted uh, from this wealthy family. It's just kind of unthinkable that, that he would have not been able to talk about that. So it, it's it's one of many, many things. I speculate at the end of the book about other possibilities, and uh, uh, there's really no good answer to this. At best, we are speculating. About $4,000 is all that has ever been recovered of that million dollars. There has been no nobody who has come forward. Uh, nobody has reported uh, any bar talk, guys sitting around a bar bragging about this or that. Uh, other 
criminal types have been implicated. Some uh, non-criminal types have been have been pointed to, but it's all been conjecture. There has never been another arrest in this case. Right, right. And of course, the FBI they were able to follow the path of the bills. Yeah, the uh, the FBI is kind of primitive uh, technology at the time, 1972, but. Uh, the FBI had recorded the serial numbers of each and every one of these used bills. And they had published a little booklet, one of which I have here, that was distributed to banks and savings and loans and other financial institutions, racetracks, uh, retail outlets, you know, wherever somebody might try to launder money. And the only bills they ever identified with this little book was a handful of banks in southern Minnesota uh, that I had mentioned earlier that uh, where they had come in within a few months of the kidnapping and, and uh, exchanged, uh, you know, about $4,000 total in, in $20 bills. So of all the possible scenarios, what do you personally think after all of your research um, what scenario do you think is the most likely one? Well, alas, there is no likely scenario. What I did is is I, I ruled out several scenarios, including those involving Don Larson and, and Kent Callahan. And then just pure speculation at the end, based on the language used in the ransom note and so forth, I thought, well, these are these are Canadians or Brits or Australians somebody in any case who don't have a criminal record in the United States because the FBI were all over people who did. Um, people who were uh, who were smart enough to know that this would be a one-and-done uh, operation. Uh, they didn't have a track record and they weren't going to repeat it. $1 million in 1972, that's what the equivalent these days of five... $5.5 million. So, you know, if you were going to split that two or three or four ways, uh, that's a pretty decent retirement amount, If assuming these guys were uh, middle-aged, which apparently they were, uh, based on, on Jenny's testimony and so forth. Um, and they, they got away with it. They Who knows what they did with the money? They probably uh, uh, tucked some away and uh, meantime, uh, laundered the rest of it, different places. There were some $20 bills, Piper 20s, that turned up around the country afterward, but in very small amounts. There was a, there was a Piper 20 that turned up in a drug bust in Philadelphia uh, some months after the kidnapping. So clearly it had been spread around. It wasn't, it wasn't like somebody was, was burying it in a, under a cornfield in, in Rice County, south of the Twin Cities afterward. I don't think that happened. But where it did go and uh, who ended up enjoying it, uh, uh, I, <laughs> it, it is, is only a very, very wild guess. So when was the last time one of these recorded bills surfaced? Do, do you think the money is, is still circulating? Well, sure. I mean, if if, if you were, you know, you were going to go out and buy a new car and uh, pay cash for it, which let's not use that example. That 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 would raise eyebrows. But 
you know, if, if you were, take your wife shopping and, and uh, you spend a weekend uh, at, at one of the malls, uh, spending a 20 here, 20 there, you could certainly spend that money. And if, if people weren't, uh, weren't taking the 20 into the back room and checking it against this FBI book with all the serial numbers, uh, you could get away with that. I'm sure that was done, at least to some extent. But I got to believe with this amount of money, uh, whoever's laundering this money is probably figuring out a way to do it in a in, in a more efficient fashion. That's why that's why casinos and and uh, and uh, uh, even drug operations, illicit drug operations, uh, were uh, were considered as as possibilities. But yeah, I'm sure you know maybe maybe you have one in your billfold. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> next next time I see you, we'll uh, we'll compare the the serial numbers. I would think if they were British or Australian, they'd have to do a pretty good job of disguising their accents for Virginia to be fooled. Well, you would think that you would think that, wouldn't you? You would think that whoever the two guys were, you know, if they were Canadian, you could. It's not like they're spending a lot of time talking either the, the conversation was, was was brief and sporadic so i i think you know if it was a brit maybe but i think a canadian for instance uh could probably uh could probably not raise too many eyebrows but when it's written you can see some of the language uh that is used um that that is definitely uh that is definitely british british english hmm you mentioned earlier that the family, despite the passing of almost 50 years, is still affected by the kidnapping of Virginia. How does it affect them today? Well, outwardly, the Pipers returned to their normal life. I mean, Bobby Piper went back to, uh, I mean, he, he didn't miss a beat. He was back to leading Piper, Jaffrey, and Hopwood, and he was still very prominent uh, out east with the stock exchange and so forth. Uh, the kids went about their careers. Uh, uh, David graduated from college and eventually got a law degree, and Tad took over the business from his father. Ginny went back to her philanthropic and, and, uh, and social uh, activities. So outwardly, it, it, it didn't seem that much had changed. They, they, went, they were regular attendees at church, etc. But people who knew them well, Ginny had several sisters and a very large coterie of, of close friends, and they noticed that Ginny was different. She was a little bit more circumspect. Uh, she was drinking more. She, was, uh, she, she just wasn't the same old Ginny. Outwardly, she was, but they could tell that there had been there had been a difference. Bobby refused to talk about the case uh, after a few months, you know, and, and during the trials and all of that, he testified as well. But after that, after that 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 second trial, after the acquittal, uh, Bobby said not another word that anybody could remember about the trial. When Harry went to him and said, Dad, uh, I really would like to write a book about this case, Bobby was adamant in saying, absolutely not. We are not going to have a book. Harry was a grown man by this time and, and could do what he wanted, but his, his dad certainly wasn't going to participate. And, uh, and apparently uh, forbade uh, Ginny from talking about it. 
uh, on the record either. Now, as I say, they both died in 88 and 90, so I didn't have a chance to meet them and talk to them about that. But uh, if I had, if I had gone to them in 2012 when I started this book, uh, they, they surely would not have, have cooperated with me. Tad Piper, the second son, was very reluctant to talk to me. Harry uh, told him I was a good guy, <laughs> and uh, they had seen my, they had read my previous books, and, and uh, Harry especially was impressed with the way I dealt with the Thompson family in, in Dial M. And uh, uh, so he was open, and David was open, the youngest son, but, but Tad was very reluctant to talk to me. And finally, he did. He agreed that I went out and spent an afternoon with him, and he was very, very outgoing and, and helpful. Uh, and I said, why, why did you change your mind? And he said, well, I knew you were going to write this book uh, anyway, and I just wanted to make sure that uh, that you got it right. So <laughs> he was... He was he turned out to be very helpful and, and cordial, and, and I, I, I saw him several times. And uh, the, the, I was very happy to do it. I'm very happy to say that, that the, the family uh, seemed to think that the book was uh, both accurate and comprehensive as, as they hoped it would be. But the family, you know, back to your question, I'm sorry that I tend to wander here. The, the, the family was, was changed. And uh, the last time I talked to them, uh, they were still the, the three sons. The parents were dead, of course, but the three sons uh, could not agree on who had done the deed and what happened to the money. Certainly, they, they disagreed about the, the, the kidnappers. Uh, Tad was, was pretty sure, as was his parents, that it was Callahan and, and uh, Larson. He saw no reason to disagree with them, and uh, and uh, he 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 agreed with with the first uh, verdict, which was guilty. Uh, Harry did not think that uh, it was Callahan and Larson, and Harry interviewed both of those men before they died, and I have their I, I have that taped interview to listen to, so I drew on that. I heard their their voices and heard their explanations. Harry did not think they were they were perpetrators. They were the perpetrators. Uh, and David, uh, the judge, he's kind of an agnostic on this. He, he he he. Last time I talked to him, he still really hadn't made up his mind. Sometimes he thinks it was them. Sometimes he he, he doesn't. And he's dealing with uh, you know he's dealing in court with uh, questions such as this all the time. So. The family, you know, the Pipers, for one thing, in, in, in this part of in this part of the country, everyone knows who the Pipers are. Everyone everyone makes that connection with the kidnapping. This was not a story that I had trouble. I, I had to do a lot of explaining as to what I was doing when I would approach a source. Oh, the Piper case! Everybody knew about it, and uh, and the family certainly, uh, even in the second and third generation, I. I would imagine are uh, are still aware in one way or the other of of what went on in 19, beginning in 1972. It must have been rough for him going in and talking to Larson, knowing he murdered so many. Yeah, it, it was a very interesting interview, and 
they really didn't talk much, if any, about that, about that case. Uh, Harry was interested in talking to him about the kidnapping. And, uh, of course, of course, Larson denied any connection with the kidnapping at all. He certainly knew about it. And, of course, he had friends. Uh, most of his friends were uh, jailbirds, uh, such as he. Uh, so they all knew about it, and it was all a topic of conversation. And there were always rumors and, and finger-pointing and so forth, but really nothing substantive, nothing that anyone could make a case out of. So that's, but that's what they talked about. Larson, by that time, his hobby was making quilts, uh, sewing quilts uh, with uh, with religious themes, you know, with crosses and heads of Christ and so forth, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting pursuit for a mass murder. Uh, but that's, I guess, when you're in prison, you you find some way to to pass the time. Yeah. I, I mean, what you said makes perfect sense. This is a guy that's never going to leave prison. He doesn't really have anything to lose. And it wasn't a, a, a murder either. So he doesn't have that tacked on to his reputation, I guess. Yeah, I I I, I think that's right. And, and as I say, I, I think a guy like that uh, would, would certainly want to brag about it. I mean, he's not going anywhere anyway. And uh, here he is, uh, you know, part of this part of this celebrated case. I mean, he, he was already a celebrity in prison as, uh, of sorts, and, and he really would be if he was talking about, oh, yeah, I know where that million dollars... I mean, can you imagine sitting there with, with a bunch of guys and saying, well, I know where that million dollars is. I, uh, you know, you, you, would, you would be the center of attention the rest of your life. That's true, but that might draw some unwanted attention, too, from fellow inmates who, who might be getting out. Well, it might. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I just I just think it's it's it, it, it's very difficult for me to think of him not bragging about that if he were if he were involved. Incidentally, on that on that mass murder, the FBI had talked to Don Larson. Well, he had talked to Don Larson and Ken, Ken Callahan literally within two weeks of the kidnapping. They were on their re- radar along with all these other guys. They talked to everybody, even though these guys had never been involved, apparently, in a kidnapping before. So they were on the radar, and, and they had also, the FBI had also talked to family members, wives, and girlfriends, and so forth, of these persons of interest, including Larson and Callahan. So one of the persons that the FBI had talked to was Don Larson's second wife, Ruth. Well, they had talked to her again. They had gone back and talked to her again just a few days before Larson went up the Willow River and murdered Ruth and her boyfriend and those three kids. And so some of the police I talked to, especially up in that part of the state, they all felt, well, that's why he killed, that's why he killed Ruth and the family, to shut them up. They, 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 Ruth was going to spill the beans on Don Larson. But, you know, when you think about that, who is going to murder five people, including three children, including one of the, one of your favorite kids? This little five-year-old boy was apparently Don Larson's favorite. 
why would you do that knowing you were going to spend the rest of your time in jail, in prison, uh, to cover up a kidnapping that at worst would probably get you 20 years in, in prison if they could, would convict you of that. Did he confess to this? Well, he yes. The, and and he, he was, as I said, he came back to town. He threw the guns over the bridge into the Mississippi River and then checked into a motel where he proceeded to drink himself silly and, uh, and, and attempt suicide. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, right. he did not. He did not. Uh, he he. In trial up in up in uh, in Willow River, actually it was Pine City. That's the county seat up there. Uh, he was defended by none none other than Ron Meshbesher, and they pleaded guilty by reason of insanity or not guilty by reason of insanity. Well, he was convicted uh, nonetheless, and and served. You know, was in prison until the day he died. But uh, no, he did not deny having anything to do with the with the murder. But he didn't. Uh, he 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 wouldn't. He 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 wouldn't say that he murdered her because uh, he wanted her not to talk to the FBI. He murdered her and the others. It, it it seems pretty obvious in just this fit of of jealous rage. She was going to go move in with with this other guy up there, this other farmer up there. But why would he kill children, you know? Unless it was just the craziness of, you know, once you start shooting and maybe he hit one of the kids by, by accident. I, I, I mean, who knows? Who knows what goes through the head of a of a mass murderer in a situation like that? Yeah, it might have been just a matter of not wanting to leave witnesses, I guess. Jeez. Yeah, and, and which is preposterous, too, when you think of it. I mean, uh, it, it wouldn't have taken the police too long to make that connection. So I was given your book by a guy named Aaron Goodyear, who loved it and gifted it to me. So nice. the good news is people listening can also give them as gifts. <laughs> <laughs> and they're available in all local bookstores, the Minnesota History Center bookstore, too, which I always love to plug when I get a chance. Yes, I'm glad. Yes, that's good. That's good. It's not, It's been available in paperback for a couple of years, too, so... Um, either way, and, and of course, it is available online and, and uh, via Amazon and so forth. But yeah, um, buy it at a bookstore. Well, perfect. This has been excellent. Thanks again. Uh, my pleasure, Eric. Uh, anytime. Again, I've been speaking to journalist William Swanson. We've been talking about his book, Stolen from the Garden, The Kidnapping of Virginia Piper. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Until next time. <laughs>